Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malamud. And I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. It's the most wonderful time of the year, or so they say. And indeed, Hanukkah and other Jewish holidays can be joyous occasions, filled with family, friends, and of course, food. And perhaps there lies the rub. As in the general culture, food plays a very large role in Judaism, on Shabbat, on holidays, and in social gatherings. But does food occupy too large a space in our lives? Do we use it as a substitute or even a compensation for something lacking inside? Do we need it to fill up when we feel something is missing in our life? And is there any connection between Judaism and unhealthy eating? I'm Elliot Malamut, and this is Crossing the Sea, a monthly podcast on Judaism and mental health. In this episode, we'll speak to experts on eating and food's relationship to emotions and to religion, and explore how we can integrate food in our lives in ways that are psychically as well as physically beneficial. Susan Osher is the founder of Connected Eating, She's a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and nutrition therapist with over 20 years of experience. She founded a private practice in 2001. I asked Susan if she thought holidays like Hanukkah or even an ordinary Shabbat contributed in some way to an unhealthy cycle of eating. I love your question because when I think about Shabbat, I think about the shtetl. Everyone would not really eat much during the week and They'd have their waff, a couple of chickens in the coop, and they'd shop at their one chicken, and the family would sit around and enjoy their, their, their flesh once a week, and everyone would be very appreciative. We've kind of lost our way within what is Shabbat, what is celebration, what is what what really in celebrating around food. Food is, and it should be, much more than adequacy and nutritional adequacy. But we definitely have set up a, a cycle of eating in such a way with multiple courses, multiple just feeling full and eating over that in most in, in most households on Shabbat and within the particularly in the Orthodox community and more observant communities. And I think it's it's definitely unfortunately to the detriment of our health sometimes when we are disconnected from our bodies. You seem to be saying in the sense there's too much food and too much of it and too concentrated at time. You also allude to the fact that it's much more than adequate nutrition. I assume that what you're talking about there is that food takes on a kind of larger meaning, that it has social meaning, that it has emotional meaning for people. And I'm sure that you see in your work that people eat for a lot of other reasons besides that they're just hungry, right? That perhaps they're stressed or they're sad or they're there's a kind of self-comfort. Why do you think that food plays such an important role in our emotional lives? And, and how does it kind of substitute in potentially unhealthy ways for 
inner fulfillment. I think that we wired to use food as a soother. You know, when you, if you put an infant, a newborn, onto their mother's stomach, the mother, the child will find its way to the breast. I mean, we are, we do soothe through that. I do think as well, and I, I've, I've been uh, challenged on this concept. I do think that we are all emotional eaters to some degree. You know, when we have a birthday or Shabbat, like you just said, we celebrate with a cake. It's not because we need more cake that day. And it was not because we need cake in that moment for our nutritional adequacy. We celebrate. We have Shiva, which is also linked into that. And we do it ourselves. We land up. I get a latte when I know that I have to work for another four hours. It's a yummy meal. It's a, I mean, a yummy, yummy drink. And it's something that makes me feel calm because of its warmth, because it's expensive. So in my past, when I used to go to Starbucks to eat it, like it was an indulgence. And that made me feel better. The problem is food is different to drugs, alcohol, and all the other ways that we can do harm to our bodies in that it's a necessity. We can't eliminate it from our diet, from our, from our lives. But we do have problems when we're using it as an excess because when we start using it as a way to numb, to dissociate, to actually come out of ourselves, it's no longer just something that we do to express emotions. It becomes a core coping strategy, which is very maladaptive. It seems like there's something very, very primary about food that isn't even the same as drugs or alcohol, which is the idea of being filled up, right? That you're literally feeling this lack and then you're ingesting this stuff and you're actually getting fuller. And I wonder if that's an incredibly tempting activity because it gives you this emotional illusion like I'm full now. So, you know, emotionally you're not full. And is that part of the problem that you face when you're doing your work? I think exactly what you're saying is one thing that it fills you up. It also can push down emotions. Food has got amazing repertoire of dealing with emotions. It also can be a way of self-destructing. If you don't eat, you feel nothing. You feel power. You feel like you have your own control. It also, while if we don't eat and we eat in a very dysregulated way, our emotions become quite dysregulated, it also can be a way of actually numbing out emotions. As I said before, when we eat too much, we can get into a dissociative state, meaning that we're not actually connected to the here and now. People who starve themselves will describe that they don't feel. they numbed out in the same sort of way. And actually, when people wait restored, if they're struggling with anorexia, one of the challenges is that they start to feel more, and that can be quite unwelcome. So I think that we can use it in very different ways. The goal in my work is oftentimes to disconnect the the use as a primary of food to deal with emotions, to have them as two separate entities and be able to express emotions in their own way and without food and to eat in a regulated way because that actually is essential for emotion regulation. Susan, it's very interesting what you just said. I, I have a very good friend who's a drug counselor and he says something very similar, which is that the issue isn't the addiction. The issue is the pain underneath the addiction. That w- what what's happening is it's clearly... There's an escape that's going on, and so you you can treat the drugs, but but it's going to come back if you haven't treat, 
treated the origin of this desperate need to escape. And you're saying something very similar, which is this kind of severing the relationship between the emotions and the food or trying to understand the emotions on a separate track from the food. Could you describe for me how you would begin to do that, like what you would talk about with somebody in terms of that relationship between the emotions and food? Well, I think the first piece is the validation. That food, that, that food and using food in some ways may have become a maladaptive coping strategy because it was the best option that that individual had to them at that point in their life when they felt overwhelmed and out of control. And that is something that is all around us all the time so we can use it. It's an access. So taking away the shame because it's quite ubiquitous, people use it in different ways and obviously to more extreme and more destructive ways. It isn't something to be ashamed of, that that is something that you went along your way and did that. And then the other piece of it, of course, is to start in a therapeutic context, working with someone being able to really express emotions, to understand how they're feeling, to understand the functioning of it, and never to strip it away entirely. Because in many ways, of course, if someone is, if it's life-threatening, you need to make sure that someone gets to eating enough so that they can function. But that the eating and recovery is not a linear process because someone has to slowly become more assertive, for example, be able to behave in different ways, have their relationships plan out in different ways and play it out with the people in their lives before they can strip away what's become a real core coping strategy. So it's wobbly, but that's the, the joy. You, As you start expressing yourself, as you start feeling it, you are really getting to your authentic self and you're not using these conduits, which are actually not that effective. I think it's very striking when you're describing your work. You know, if I were to say to somebody, oh, I'm talking to a nutritionist and they would say to me, oh, those are like people like think about calories, right? And like, you know, you should eat your vegetables and stuff. And, and they, and there's really not a really full discernment of the enormous emotional component that goes into your work. In fact, it seems to be from what you're saying, it's the underlying essence of what you do. You're not just like counting calories. You're thinking about this whole nexus between emotions, strategies to suppress emotion and food as a tool in that, that kind of cycle. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, usually with working in eating disorders, there's usually a therapist, a doctor and a dietitian, the nutritionist as the core group. I've found myself straddling the lanes a little bit too much. That's why I'm back at school right now doing psychotherapy because I was like, well, you're going out of your lanes a bit too much. Yeah. And I'm loving it. And it feels so obvious because really, as I say to my clients, when we talk about food, it's almost like saying, hi, and it's lovely to meet you. Please take off all your clothes, right? It's such intimacy. What we take in, there's very few things that we take into our bodies, maybe sex and, you know, for women and eating oxygen, but we don't really think about that. It's such a primal thing of taking in the world when we come to eating. And I feel absolutely in awe of the human body, our ability to have the capacity to make millions of reactions every single split second to just keep us alive. And our food is one of the primary ingredients that makes us be vital, be functioning in our optimal way. So 
it's this balance of not feeling as everything is clean eating and our bodies are needing to be, you know, a hundred percent perfect in terms of what we feed it. Absolutely not. I love that I'm speaking on this podcast because I oftentimes use this analogy of, yes, our bodies are our temple, but the way that I see that it would imagine our temple, the Jewish temple was, it wasn't such a clean place. Like there was blood everywhere, probably smelt a lot. <laughs> you know, and most of our organs, if you think about it, are detoxing organs. Our guts, our kidneys, our liver. Like we've got a lot perspiring, breathing. We naturally get rid of what we don't want. So we don't have to be so perfect, but it is very holy, the whole act of eating. And it's, it's a big thing that we eat. It's, it's, so I'm very, I'm very, I love how food interacts with our bodies and that it's, it's an awesome job. It's a huge responsibility, eating and nourishing ourselves. Yeah, humans are a messy business, you know, inside and out. <laughs> uh, one thing that food does that I think is different, and a friend of mine pointed this out, is that, you know, if you drink, you for a while you can drink secretly, you know, and if you use, so sometimes you can use secretly. But your food leaves a mark. Like if you're overeating, there it is. Like people see it on your body, you know, and if you're starving yourself, people see it on your body. Something very exposing about food and very, and I guess you were talking about shame before. I'm interested when you talk to clients about shame or you talk to them about the experience of shame, how do you overcome their feeling of, say, self-loathing for what they've done in terms of food? So one thing, I just want to put it out there, actually not. Not in terms of what you just said. When we see extremes, like someone is starving themselves, you will see the stereotypical cachectic look of someone with anorexia. When someone is perhaps binging in extremes, you may see someone who is overweight. But what is problematic is when you're actually making these assumptions. Because Sorry, I don't mean to critique, but no, it's, it's important to put it out there because yep. most people that I see in my work, you would never guess how much they were struggling. In in other words, like I once did a podcast on like, I'm not, I don't look sick enough to have an eating disorder. The vast majority, like the most, the most known eating disorder is seen as anorexia still. And that is the classic eating disorder. Very, it's a very small percentage of people who struggle with anorexia and very few of them you would actually recognize going down the street. And the same with people who are overweight, there's presumptions oftentimes that they are binging or overeating, but you have no idea what's going on, whether they have a metabolic disorder or whether this is just an unnatural genetics. So I just want to put it out there because 100%. The problem is that we do live in a culture, let's go to the part that's more shaming because, forgive me for saying this, but anorexia tends to be what I call like the arrogant eating disorder. It's like, actually, the goal was to lose weight, to be thin, and look, yay, I got it. Obviously, it's much more complicated. But I'm saying that in the context of binge eating disorder, which is the most underreported, it wasn't even in the DSM-5, it was in an in a little appendix at the end of the DSM-5, and we know that binge eating disorder is more prevalent than bulimia and, bin- and anorexia combined, and two of the hallmarks of binge eating are secrecy and shame, right? So... We're not getting that reporting. So how do I deal with the shame? The shame is something that is the way that we're seeing ourselves in the eye of the beholder, right? That's, it's this idea that people are looking at us that are judging ourselves. And honestly, people who are struggling with that, where it's got such a 
blatant, overt view of like, I'm showing you all how much I'm eating and all my secret binges, but now you can all see it. Really, it's about bringing it back to not really worrying about the mind reading. Like it's actually no one that you are the worst critic of yourself, always, hands down, can bet it. That what you see is not what other people are seeing. And when I even, you know, we'll do an exercise of how do you know these people in your life? Do you think of them as overweight? Like how would you describe them? Even people who are, that they know that might be at a higher weight, blah, 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 blah. They won't describe them. That might be one description, but it's not how they know them. It will be that they're creative or maybe they're interesting or they're interested in, in swimming or they like philosophy. That it's not about the physical appearance. That's not what we value in another person. So it's about unpacking that piece as well. Someone who has spent his professional career treating and researching eating disorders is Dr. Alan Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. And he was the inaugural Loretta Ann Rogers Chair in Eating Disorders at Toronto General Hospital. Dr. Kaplan has lectured widely on various topics in the field, as well as authoring hundreds of articles. I asked him if he saw a particular connection between eating disorders and religion, specifically Judaism. I think it's it's very individual, but there are potential negative consequences and positive. So food is nurturing. That's the symbolic representation of how we nurture our loved ones. And it, and that's through all societies. It's not just through the Jewish experience. Where I think it's gone off track in a negative way in our communities, especially the very Orthodox community, is the association then of food, eating, weight, and shape, and how that impacts on the marriageability of, of young people. Obesity and overweight are highly stigmatized in the very religious community. It's as if the child has leprosy. And I've seen this repeatedly. And it puts tremendous pressure on young girls to restrict their intake of food. And that causes all kinds of family conflict and disharmony when the whole point of feeding and nurturing gets lost in all of that. It takes on meaning in certain families, especially Holocaust survivor families. So, and I've experienced this clinically as well. So for Holocaust survivors who went through starvation over a number of years as a means of torture and persecution, we know that people that are starved, whether it's for religious reasons, political reasons, or self-starvation, develop a unhealthy relationship with food and tend to overfeed those around them. And you do see this in the, in the children offspring of Holocaust survivors, where food has taken on enormous meaning. And the parent doesn't respond to the child's needs. So developmentally, a child should be fed when the child is hungry. And the only way you, a child can, a person can know if a child's hungry is if the child says, I'm hungry or I'm full. As opposed to it stemming from the need, and in some instances, pathologic need of the parent to feed the child. And as I say, in some cases, overfeed the child. So that when that goes off, development is arrested and all kinds of difficulties, including eating disorders, develop because the child is then taught not to rely on their own internal sensations, that they're not reliable. And so they actually lose sense of hunger and satiety and then are externally driven. If there's food out there, they'll eat it, whether they feel hungry or not. 
Uh, so that's, again, a couple examples of, I think, what you're asking about that are, are negative, necessarily negative consequences of the focus on food. That's interesting. You're talking about two kind of different interlinked phenomena. One is almost kind of self-starvation on the part of the anorexic patient, and the other is a kind of force feeding from without Right. that's forced on the person. But you're linking it to the same sort of psychic phenomenon, right? Which is, if, if I think about what you're saying, it seems to me that the common denominator is a lack of control on the part of the, the agent. And would you say, I, I don't really know about this, but I'm I'm wondering, is part of the anorexic impulse to establish a certain kind of control over the body in a strange way? Absolutely. Yeah, th th that's central to the syndrome, that these are people who develop eating disorders are uh, usually girls or young women, not always, but usually, who feel completely out of control. One of the reasons that eating disorders begin in adolescence is because the body goes haywire. The and, and if a child isn't prepared for the changes in the body, for the hormonal diff changes that occur, for the, you know, the body to take on a more sexual kind of image, uh, that makes a young girl who's vulnerable feel completely out of control. And in fact, it's, it's a compromise that works. By starving yourself, you arrest pubertal development and you go back to a prepubertal state. You don't menstruate. You don't develop secondary sexual characteristics. You don't develop libido. Uh, all of that is shut down. And that is exactly what that child wants. They do not want to confront adolescence. It's just too, it's too difficult, too frightening. Is there a specific iteration of this in religious patients that you've seen, religious young women, this nexus between unhealthy eating and religion and sin, whatever you want to call it. Well, it, it, as you said, you know, food is often used in a negative way, uh, and including in religious families, because it takes on religious meaning. So, you know, eating certain foods on certain holidays, saying the brachot, both before and after, the whole concept of kosher and treif plays into that as well. Separating yourself from those around you, that is one of the purposes of keeping kosher, is to separate yourself from the community around you. It, 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 it's a very powerful force, especially in religious communities, uh, and can be a force used for positive things because, you know, the taste, the smell, it all reminds us of memories when we're growing up the smell of chicken soup or whatever it may be, or it, it can, it can be used negatively. I hadn't thought about it until you started talking, but it almost feels like food becomes a kind of rebellion. It becomes the conduit through which rebellion takes place. Have you had patients who've specifically used food, maybe not kosher food as a rebel, as, as the form of rebellion against their parents? Yeah. So I'll describe a case. Again, these are, these are unsettling cases, they were for me, of a 16-year-old, very religious girl in a very religious girl's yeshiva in Toronto who had bulimia nervosa. So bulimia is binge eating and purging without losing a lot of weight. So she, when she binged, she always went to McDonald's and had a cheeseburger. And then even more, what one would be considered even more extreme versions of trafe food. And she was racked with guilt uh, when she realized, and it was almost in an altered state, it was interesting because I found a Gomorrah in Baba Kama about this behavior 
identified in Aramaic as Bulmot, and it's translated by the Sonsino Gomorrah as Bulimi. Uh, and there was a discussion amongst the rabbis as to whether or not where somebody had this, and they described it more like an epileptic fit, whether they were responsible halakhically for what they ate during one of these states. And the conclusion of the rabbis was that they were not. They were not responsible because they did not have all of their faculties in place. And I, I found that very interesting, and I've actually used that with religious girls uh, as a way to help them appease their guilt. Because I would say, you have a disorder, right? You're not fully in control of what you're eating. Your brain chemistry is not normal. And as a result of that, you're doing things that you wouldn't necessarily do if you didn't have this disorder. Some may say that's, you know, abrogating responsibility, but it, it, it provides a therapeutic space for these young people. Otherwise, they suffer tremendously. What's the fallout of this within families? I'm, I'm wondering, I'm thinking about this specifically in terms of the, the we, we've been talking about forgiveness. Can forgiveness occur in these families? Or is the, is the patient able to forgive themselves? Are the people around them able, able to forgive them? And what facilitates that? Yeah, I think it requires a lot of education for parents and people who, who struggle with this. I, and I do think the medical model is helpful. And we, we now have evidence from the imaging of the brains of people with some of these disorders that show that their brains are not normal. They're not responding normally to food. So if you present uh, a study I was involved in, a, a picture of, simple picture of a chocolate milkshake to a normal, healthy young woman, nothing happens in the brain on an MRI. So an MRI measures blood flow through certain parts of the brain. If you do the same thing with somebody who has bulimia, half of the brain lights up. The, the increase in blood flow in certain parts of the brain suggests that, that is being, those areas are being activated. And that activation has consequences for behavior. So when you can present this to both uh, people who suffer from these disorders and their families, which, which is hard evidence of a physiologic change and abnormality, and that the child is not necessarily responsible or doing this uh, as a way of rebellion, there's a, there's, a con there's a psychological part to this too. So it's not just either or, because once people start doing this, they do tend then to get secondary gain out of it by metaphorically speaking, vomiting on those who they feel are oppressing them. Wow. So patients leave bags of vomit around, which is very disturbing. I'm sure you can imagine to parents intentionally because they know it's going to get them very upset. It sounds like there's a lot of rage involved here. A tremendous amount yeah. of rage, yes. Right. So these, these kids have had their voice silenced. Some of that's related to the religious experience, which presented in a burdensome way can do that. And they regain their voice in a sense by doing what they do. Yeah. As both Alan and Susan are articulating, food is at the very center of our world, and there's a great deal of pressure to be, quote, just the right weight, unquote which in many circles means to be as thin as possible. We seem to be living in a time of a fairly dismissive and judgmental diet culture in which bodies are surveyed based on weight. How can we reconcile that with our own Jewish celebrations? Because let's face it, Hanukkah has plenty of what might be seen as unhealthy food. Latkes cooked in oil or sufganiyot, the donuts with jelly or other fillings, would never be mistaken for green leafy vegetables. So on the one hand, 
you have our culture, with its often severe appraisal of overeating. And then there's Hanukkah, with its not-so-subtle invitation to let go and feast to your heart's content on oily treats. I asked Susan Osher if she saw a kind of conflict in these opposing messages. Big time. <laughs> For sure, we've got, and it's not just about, unfortunately, it's not just about our external cultures. If I, you know, it's the messaging and it's a big diet culture. We could call it, you using an example of, for example, like fat in the Sufganiyot and Hanukkah. And that's one of the joy, the oil in the, in the Beta Mikdash. And, you know, that's where we're enacting it, which is a beautiful thing. But what, even what the diet culture is, like it has shifted and changed and we've got the healthy food and you using those words, healthy food, not healthy foods. Clean eating has now become code word for dieting. You know, even that is problematic, right? And we have not stayed with our Jewish ideals. Like I think about Shidupin, like really having big hips and having, you know, good breasts, like that should be the ideal woman, you know, child-bearing woman. But that's not what's at all. It's a very Western ideal of being a thin woman. And we, there's, as you may or may not know, there's a very high prevalence of eating disorders in the Orthodox Jewish community. I was actually quite shocked to see it in our guidebooks for high-risk populations in the eating disorders world. Got it right there. There's special programs. And we've got this dichotomy happening of, you know, do the Jewish culture celebrated with so much zest and, you know, full in, indulgence, as you said, and yet keep your body looking good, you know, in the, the you know, the, the eye of the gazer. You also need to be together and looking a certain way. So we've got these huge contradictions happening. There seem to be different messages going out in the culture about being thin now, just picking up on what you were talking about, especially vis-a-vis -vis women. So if I think back 40 years, so thinness was like a huge deal at that point, And there was all sorts of stuff in literature about, you know, thin being the marker of beauty. And it wasn't always like that. And, and there was a real preoccupation. I want you to catch me up culturally. Do you still think there's pressure on women today to be thin? Or do you think that society has become more diverse in its evaluation of beauty? I think we're heading there. I think it's very marginal at this point. We do definitely have some you know, people trending on all the social media platforms and there are some, you know, pop artists and actors who are definitely showing different Bonyant ideals. And that's a really good thing. Definitely even the soap operas and the sitcoms from a couple of decades ago showed a very different female form to what we see. Having said that, I do think it's still a pervasive cultural ideal to be thin. What about and the I reverse think, case, right? Yeah. What about, you know, you have like sort of fat liberation activists now who like kind of utterly reject the notion of being thin. They'll say things like, you know, I'm happy being overweight and you have the right to choose any shape you like and any size you like. And they have pretty sizable sort of Instagram and and YouTube followings, and there there's a sort of wholesale rejection of the of the diet culture because what they're arguing is that self-love is more important than what you do with your body. 
I would think that for you, that would leave you a bit ambivalent. Like on the one hand, I think you would appreciate the idea of not being so self-loathing and so self-critical. But perhaps the upshot of what they're saying is that they may still be eating in ways that are particularly beneficial. Like, what do you think of that whole trend? Well, not the way that you're describing it as your your quote includes um, self-love, right? And I'd like to, I'd like to propose that self-love means body connection. In other words, if you're eating in a way that actually is attuned to your needs, there is the body that comes out of that, of that way of eating, that you thought about what you were eating, listened to your body, tuned and meaning intuitive as well, that you ate when you were hungry, you stopped when you were full, you had a, a, a sense of eating that had, as you, you know, thinking of being on a little rowing boat with two oars. The one is, you know, all the healthy and we know that these foods are really important for us. And the other war is like, go mad, enjoy. If you're, for, you know, if you're using one war, you're going to be spinning in a circle, no matter where you go. So, I mean, you're alluding also to within the health industry, healthy in every size, the Hayes Institute and the, the Hayes movement, which is really looking at the literature, which has really challenged the need for weight as one of the criteria for health. And, you know, if you look at vitals and if you look at functionality, you actually don't need weight so much. So that's also a big movement. And when Hayes came out, like I kind of also had to be, like I had a bit of a irk, like, no, you can't actually not think of how you're eating completely as out of it. But when you come down to it, it just is not using weight as a way of labeling someone. And I think that's an important piece. When you say you don't need weight, meaning you don't need it necessarily to be the absolute marker of whether you're healthy or unhealthy? Uh Absolutely, because there's not much data when you actually comb through the literature that says that. I see. I see. Let's go back to Hanukkah and maybe bring the pieces together here. I, I want to give you the following scenario, which is a really common scenario. And I want you to tie it into what you do. So you have a client and the client's invited to a Hanukkah party. And there's going to be lots of really tempting, but not necessarily, you know, the healthiest food available. And they're nervous about it. They're anxious about it. What would you counsel clients to do, especially those that kind of know that under certain circumstances, they really have trouble reining in their food intake. So they want to enjoy but in a way, they're not the kind of people who can just enjoy like just one Lay's potato chip kind of thing. So what, what would you, what would you say to them? First piece of advice was, would be don't go there too hungry because your biological drive to eat will override everything. So make sure that you ate well for the rest of the day. Make sure that you have a snack before, which is very counterintuitive, but you shouldn't go famished to a party where you know there's going to be a lot of treats. Second of all, be a food snob. Not every sifkanyot is so fabulous, actually, right? <laughs> so decide before. You probably, it's not your first Hanukkah party. You probably know that you prefer the chocolate-filled one versus the jelly one or something like that. And make a decision before, right? So you be a food snob. Before you arrive, you kind of have a sense of what you would want and play it out in your mind. It's not the last supper. The another seven days of right? And the other piece, which is a hard one, and keep in mind that with the literature, 
And it's funny because when, when you look at these scales, they always talk about Thanksgiving fullness, which actually happens for the rest of the world, you know, three times a year on average, you know, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving. That's like the typical American, you know, paradigm. We get it like every Shabbat and every Thanukkah and every Fat and every, every time. What part of that is the amount of variety around, right? That increases our intake. The other piece, fascinatingly enough, is the amount of people. When we eat with more people, we eat more. So, I mean, there's something in there about distractions. It's triggering maybe with family or friends that are going to evoke emotions in you and you'll be starting to do emotional eating. So there's, and there's a lot of buzz. So really important, if you can, to even make a mental, mental goal to check into yourself, even if it's three or five times during the meal, to drop down into yourself and say, okay, where am I at now? In a scale of, you know, zero to 10, how full am I? The goal somewhere between, you know, four to six, four to seven max. Should, if I'm hitting sort of five already, meaning that I can get up from the table, but I still will want something in an hour, eat a bit more. If you're already hitting a six, then you're kind of, you're kind of getting to, you, you got it. You'll be okay for another three hours. If you're hitting a seven, you're eating more than normal, but you're still within what's a normal range. If you're into the eight, you're already into that very full you unzip your pants in your skirt. And if you're in the nine, it's that classic Thanksgiving fullness or Jewish fullness. And the ten is sort of when you're getting into binge eating and your back and your stomach hurt. So I'm saying to take the time to drop down into yourself and check how are we doing inside, emotionally, physically, and without jokes aside. If you're finding yourself overwhelming, you can always go to the washroom. Go and check in with yourself. How am I doing? Like, what am I actually feeling here? Do I need to leave this party early? Because it might actually not be that good for me emotionally or physically right now. And that might be the best thing for yourself. So be respectful and do what you're needing in that time. I really appreciate what you're saying. You know, it, it's so expansive on the usual stereotypical picture that that what we're doing with food is we're looking at the backs of, of food boxes and cartons in the supermarket and checking out exactly whether it has, you know, 100 calories or 140. And for you, the emotional component seems to be the underlying piece of it all, because what you're suggesting here is that when you're in a situation where there is food around, the real issue is not, you know, does that cake have a little more calories than that cookie, but rather how am I feeling? You know, why am I eating? Am I full yet? And if I'm full, why am I eating more? And just that real sense of self-check-in on an emotional level is far more important than any kind of technical survey of whether, you know, things have more fat or less fat. And if I can just, as I said, it's your last question. When we're too hungry, we're in a high-risk time of overeating. Funny enough, when we're too full, we're also, it's almost like you override that message and you didn't respond to it, you're also in a high risk of eating more. So it's that time that our bodies are talking to us. Check in with yourself. What's happening? Listen and listen to your body. That's self-love. And if I could just add one other thing, I've really struggled or played around with what to call 
you've responded, you've called them not healthy. We, in, you know, people will use different words of fun food, sometimes food, and but it oftentimes is euphemism for good food, bad food. And what I've sort of settled on my little term I like to use is what I call heads up food, meaning it's not good for your body necessarily. It's not your cow and broccoli, as you called it, which, you know, it doesn't matter. Make Work out how to get it into your body in the most delicious way possible. But our bodies really need it. So it's really important to include those foods in our diet. But really heads up food means that it smells good, it looks good. Sometimes when I'm in session or hear people talking, I start salivating. Like, that's yummy stuff. Like, even the thought of it makes us bring up these beautiful ideas about food. As not as we're able to appreciate that when we're eating in a heads-up way, meaning that these foods might not necessarily be good for our bodies, but it's good for our souls, it's good for big, but then conditions of eating that is to be mindful, to stay in that place, to slow down and savor when you're at the Thanaka party and you're having tons of conversations with people and popping in donuts as you're going, you're very unlikely to be tasting the food. You're very unlikely to be actually listening to, just like any other sense, your taste buds get bored and actually you're not getting that much pleasure. I've been speaking about and the intuitive, but that's really from the insula. That's the brain telling bottom-up messaging. The body's telling the brain, you've had enough. Stop now, right? That other piece is that our taste buds will even say, getting bored of this taste, you can stop now. We need to be in touch with our bodies. And especially when we're eating those, like you're calling not healthy foods, what I'm calling heads-up food, be present, be mindful of it. And if you're not able to do that, ask for a takeout bag, right? <laughs> do it when you're actually going to enjoy it. And so that you're actually able to listen to your body. Being present to our own experience, it would seem, includes paying attention, not only to what we eat, but whether we're actually enjoying it, or whether it's secretly just a sideshow to our own inner drama, our cycle of self-esteem and shame, self-acceptance versus self-criticism. Hanukkah and Christmas, with their promise of party excitement and good cheer, can often cover up the fact that this is a very difficult time of year for many people, in which loneliness and the challenge of family relationships come to the fore. And with those struggles, food is never very far away to console, to soothe, but also to suppress or numb emotions. Developing a healthier relationship to food and to our bodies is inextricably linked to working through how we feel about ourselves and those who inhabit our lives. And if we can get that right, that we'll become more discerning consumers, literally and metaphorically, and hopefully feel just filled up enough to celebrate. I'm Elia Malamet, and this has been Crossing the Sea. If you'd like to check out previous episodes of this series, as well as other podcasts and online offerings, just subscribe to Living Jewishly at www.livingjewishly.org where you can join the thousands of other people who are becoming empowered through our programming to renew and recreate their Jewish lives and experiences. Stay safe and take good care of yourselves. Happy Hanukkah. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.